The Laura Flanders Show. This is a place to go for stories of resilience, power shifting, and change rooted in love. This is Leah Penniman from Soul Fire Farm. The Laura Flanders Show is made possible by listeners just like you. You can become a sustaining member and help keep our programming independent, audacious, and ad-free. Go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show and become a member. And this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. A whole lot of social ills were made more visible and worse by the COVID-19 pandemic. Among those, racial, gender, and class inequities. At the same time, the very rich got very much richer and demands for justice got louder. And some individuals gave away record-breaking amounts of money through private philanthropy. In June 2021, 286 nonprofits received big grants from Mackenzie Scott, ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. This summer's drop, Scott's third in a year, was worth almost $3 billion. What's all that private funding do? How does it change the field of philanthropy in general? And how does it change the landscape for social justice? This week, we'll talk with one of the very few African-American women at the head of a long-standing public foundation. Teresa Younger is president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation, which last year released a report showcasing the drastic need to hold philanthropy accountable to communities and movements and the changes that they seek. Teresa Younger is president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation, which just last year released a report showcasing the drastic need to hold private philanthropy accountable to communities and movements and the changes that they seek. Teresa Younger is also a participant in the White House Gender Policy Council. But first, we'll go to V, the artist and activist formerly known as Eve Ensler, who recently wrote a blistering account in The Guardian titled Disaster Patriarchy. That details how, as she put it, the COVID pandemic unleashed a war on the world's women. I'm happy to welcome V back to the show. V, welcome back. Welcome to the Laura Flanders Show. Disaster patriarchy. Talk about the contours of this disaster as you see it. And why was it so important to you to name it in the way that you have right now? Before I um, jump into this, I just want to make my terms clear so everyone knows that they're included. Um, when I speak of women, I am speaking of cisgendered and gender diverse. Um, and I, when I say racialized patriarchy, sometimes I'll say patriarchy, sometimes I'll say racialized patriarchy, but I'm always meaning racialized patriarchy. It all started with The Guardian asking me to do a piece for their 200th year anniversary, is that amazing? Looking at violence against women post COVID. So I started to really read, investigate, and interview many, many activists from around the world. And what I began to see was that COVID had unleashed truly the most severe setback to women's liberation in my lifetime. And I think going back to Naomi Klein, who was the first to identify um, disaster capitalism, when capitalists use a disaster to um, impose measures they couldn't get away with in normal times, generating more profit for themselves. I think I would say, and I haven't coined this phrase, it has been used by other people before me, but disaster patriarchy is a parallel process where 
men seem to exploit a crisis to reassert control and dominance and rapidly erase hard-earned women's rights. All over the world, um, patriarchy has taken full advantage of this virus to reclaim power. On the one hand, escalating danger and violence to women on the end, stepping in as their supposed controller and protector. And and I really talk to women in in all throughout Africa, I talk to women in India, I talk to women throughout Europe, in in Latin America. And unfortunately, the story seems to be pretty much the same worldwide. And I urge people to read the article in The Guardian. We'll link to it at our website. You talk to people from Peru, from France, but also here and also here, I should say, in the United States. Will you you remind us that women have been, women and girls have been both uh, celebrated and praised as essential workers and seen as entirely expendable. And one of the things you say is you don't know whether to be more upset about the behavior of the men and government or the inaction, especially of government. One of the things that really horrifies me is here we have these conditions, right, where we have learned over time that if you put people and lock them in a house together with no money, with radical load, lowered self-esteem because people don't, men don't have work, being cramped up all day long with children who they're really worrying about not being able to feed or take care of, right? Um, violence and anger escalates, right? I mean, you take alcohol and you add that to the abuse, we know there will be further escalation. The statistics we're seeing now in the US, in France, in Peru, in Spain, in Italy, I mean, name a country. Yeah. Um, the escalation of domestic abuse um, is is off the charts. And we don't even know the half of it yet because we're not going to hear the reports of how many children were sexually abused, how many children were tortured. All of this, and, and not one government thought about the possibility of this. So when the going gets tough, we, we put all the, the load on the women. But then in a moment like this, where we're supposedly entering recovery getting back to normal, there's no help for those women. What are you calling for? What is Agnes calling for? What are the world's women that you know calling for? Well, I think everybody's calling for the same thing, like to honor women. First of all, let's look at the amount of work that women are having to do, right? There, there are loads of childcare, feeding, teaching. That's never been work that's been paid paid for. That's not paid labor. Why isn't that paid labor? Those women are keeping families alive. My sense everywhere was that that women should be being paid for this and supported in doing that. The second thing is that shelters or, 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 or some kind of understanding that women are caught and need a place to go. I mean, in many places, shelters have shut down right? At the exact moment when they were most needed. Everyone says, we love women. We need women. We can't live without women. And yet no one's willing to pay or support those women who are doing the critical work. So massive reparations and restoration for for women. And there's lots of states where under the auspices of COVID, of the COVID crisis, they withdrew access to abortions and and the, the ability of clinics to actually provide abortion access, which is a whole nother story. You go further, though, in your article in The Guardian, you call for a Marshall Plan size fund to help the world dismantle patriarchy, which while I love the idea, I want to know what it would look like. And I'm sure you've dreamt up exactly that. 
I think part of it is, is educating people and looking at what is patriarchy? What does it mean that we are living inside a system, right? That is based on a very few people having all the goods, all the money, um, all the power, and determining life for everybody else. We need to educate, we need forums, we need art that expunges trauma and grief and aggression and sorrow and anger in the culture. We are constantly forgetting what we are learning, right? Mm. We are constantly forgetting our history. We only have to look at what's happening right now in terms of the the pushback against critical race theory or or anti-racism training, like the desire to like not know our history, to not know where we come from, because then you can continue on with the same behavior. I don't know, I would just love it if we would take time to sit around and saying, there is a mindset we are currently ruled by. It is called- Racialized patriarchy. Racialized (laughs) patriarchy, okay? This is the system, this is the bubble we are under. It's only 17,000 years old. We could act, there were systems before and there can be systems after. How do we begin to create those systems? And what would they look like? Every single activist I talked about said that until this systemic racialized patriarchy that we live in is dismantled, we're gonna keep going back here, right? It, it, it's we're just going to keep because that's that's what people fall back to because it's trained into their DNA. Thank you, V. It's really um, an important call to arms. I loved seeing your piece. I'm glad it was in there. And it's it's a joy to be able to bring it to more people. I appreciate it. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. That was V, award-winning playwright and author formerly known as Eve Ensler, best known for her play, The Vagina Monologues. She's the founder of V-Day and One Billion Rising. Her life's mission, she says, is centered on gender equity and working to end violence against women, all women, including cis, trans, and non-binary people. You can find more of my interviews with V in our archives at www.lauraflanders.org. And while you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter to receive information on all our streaming events and audio exclusives, including our full uncut interviews and my commentaries. I call them the F word. The latest is on the Crip Camp Disability Revolution. Again, that's lauraflanders.org. Next, I talk with the CEO of the Ms. Foundation, Teresa Younger, on holding philanthropy accountable to communities and movements rooted in creating systemic change. But first, here's Water Me Down by Vagabond. That's part of a new Red Hot and Free project produced by Bill Coleman of Peace Biscuit. Red and Hot is a not-for-profit dedicated to fighting AIDS through pop culture since 1990.
world looks different after COVID, but not different enough, say a lot of us. What would a reimagined, new, more equitable society look like? And what do we need to do to get from here to there? Joining me to pick up that question is Teresa Younger, CEO of the Ms. Foundation. So that brings us to the op-ed that you wrote with Joy Anderson, the, the president and founder of the Criterion Institute where you talked about this moment as maybe not new, but as a moment of opportunity. And you began yes. that by imagining a world where we took the temperature of our economy differently. Um, how? Well, I think, you know, we have continued to assume that success in this country is about how the markets look. And those markets were developed by white men hundreds of years ago. They were not developed in line with women, women and girls of color, trans folks, gender non-conforming folks, LGBT folks. None of those folks were in the conversation. Women in general were not in the conversation. So why are we going back to the same systems that have continued to fail over half of our society. How do we see this as an opportunity to actually start analyzing the systems? And maybe we shouldn't just assume that finance and capitalism are the only ways to measure success in our society. What would that look like? I mean, you are there on the White House Gender Policy Council. Um, there's been discussion of um, uh, universal preschool, childcare, investing in in um, you know all of these kinds of policies, including senior care and so on. But very little flesh on the bones, very few bits of data. And in an op-ed just recently in the New York Times, Bryce Covert, who writes about these things, says many of the Biden plans are out of date. The Gender Policy Council is the White House's attempt to look inside and to align the gender assessment analysis with a race lens and a disability lens from inside. Uh, it's looking at both a global as well as a domestic alignment for what the administration might want to be doing. Uh, and so I, I'm I'm not sitting on the council, I'm sitting with the council to be part of a conversation that they need to have. And we're looking at that from a multitude of spaces and places. They are actually doing a listening analysis of uh, what needs to happen. They are looking at research and data that's being collected across all different kinds of departments and are asking folks, what do you think needs to be collected? How do we recenter the information? How do we provide consistency in what we're doing? How do we break down that data? Uh, so, and. And I, I would say that so many of the Biden administration policies or proposed policies may be a little outdated, but they're further than, than we have been in a long time. I mean, we are having a re we actually have in this country right now a child care tax credit that allows for families to get tax credit. We have, for the first time, nonprofits can apply for uh, payroll tax credits. Uh, you know, we have a conversation going on maybe stagnated now about the determination of what infrastructure looks like. We're having real conversations about what a care economy looks like, not just from the perspective of child care, but what it looks like to care for our elderly community members. And you have uh, confidence so that this conversation is headed towards the kind of systemic change that you have in mind? Because to a lot of us on the outside, 
it still looks super temporary and a little uh, bit moderate in tone. Here's what I have confidence in. We're having a conversation yeah. that we have not legitimately had before. And sometimes it's just asking the question that gets everybody uncomfortable. So do I believe in this one term with a defunct Senate that we're going to get these policies passed? Maybe not. Do I think that state legislatures have an opportunity to implement some of these pieces and we can recreate what that looks like? Possibly. But I'm also absolutely disheartened that we can't get a voting rights bill through. And I'm absolutely disheartened that, you know, we are looking at spending trillions of dollars on infrastructure reform, and we can't decide on what that should look like. And we only want to go back to what ha it has been. It's roads and trains and planes, it's bridges, but we actually need to have a real conversation. What does it take to, to live in our country, to thrive? Why do we always talk about minimums from the basement? Why don't we talk about it from the midpoint? So I will say, I'm, I don't know that I'm blindly optimistic. There are no rose-colored glasses, but I feel like we're having a legitimate conversation yeah. where people are not ignoring. That takes us to movements. And you wouldn't have been all these years in philanthropy and social justice if you felt that change happened overnight or with one administration. Um, so let's talk about that. You mentioned trillions, trillions of dollars um, are moving at this moment. And we've seen something like nine billion move um, from just one source, Mackenzie Scott, in the mm -hmm. last 20, you know, 12 months. Yeah. On the one hand, this is fantastic. Uh, going to social justice groups, responding to the demands of groups like the Movement for Black Lives. But you were part of a large group of philanthropists from public philanthropies, public foundations, who wrote a letter um, to philanthropy as a field, yeah. raising some concerns. You said, on the one hand, this is great, but it wouldn't be great if we do this transfer of money wrong, if, if we didn't do it yes. right. So can yes. you lay out your concerns about this while, of course, it's fantastic to see money shifting? Well, I think one of the things we need to lift up is that uh, public foundations like the Ms. Foundation uh, raise our dollars. We are committed and responsible to the grassroots that we are serving towards the missions that we are trying to achieve. When we see uh, gifts like McKinsey Scott, which are based in trust, she is making those gifts with no strings attached for a limited period of time and saying to, to uh, nonprofit groups on the ground doing this work, you spend this money how you see fit. But what we have to understand is that many, many nonprofits, social justice movements in this country are completely underfunded. And instead of also, you know, sometimes people feel like they have to do it their way, we actually know uh, public philanthropy actually knows how to service our communities. And we have actually been formulating deep relationship with movement structures for a long time. So that letter that we wrote in conjunction with what I consider some of the best thinkers in public philanthropy was really about questioning the fact that why do we always need to start something new and make things hard? Mm. Why don't we learn and listen to those who have been moving money to the field, those who have a social responsibility to have an impact and that we are listening to the grassroots? I mean, when you're talking about the amount of money that Mackenzie Scott is moving, there are also 
hundreds of thousands of nonprofits in this country, and many of them are being that have budgets under half a million dollars and are servicing their communities. And we're called on during COVID to do just that. And in this moment, it seems as if there are some women who are indeed experiencing the she session. Um, a lot of women, single heads of households, professionals leaving work to look after kids, suffering the consequences of that gap in their professional career. But there are a lot of women who are not leaving the workforce, who never did during this pandemic. How do you serve all of these interests at the Ms. Foundation? We're starting the conversation at the Ms. Foundation by centering women and girls of color as our starting point. And we believe that in the pool of inequality, if we can drop one stone over one thing, it's going to be women and girls of color. And the rippling effects will, will come across so many different folks who are in that pool of inequality, whether it's with disabilities, whether it's trans, whether it's uh, men, you know, it can be anybody, but we're going to start there as a point because it changes the conversation. So much of our conversations have centered around white males. Uh, and even when you move women into that conversation, it has traditionally not been about women and girls of color, has not been about black women and girls. And how do we change what's happening in our society? We have to address the centering conversation that we're looking to have an impact on. We can't start at the top of the hill and expect everybody to be okay because they got to the top of the hill. I want to come to the research that you actually did a, a year okay. ago speaking yeah. to movement groups about the form of accountability that they're seeking um, and the stresses that they're feeling. Because um, a lot of people think more money, more money is good, period. Um, not always the case. Money has to be consistent. And in our new report that we put out last year called Pocket Change, how women and girls of color are doing more with less, we actually did an analysis of what is happening in the field. And what we heard from those who are doing work is more times than not, there's always this, you know, it's, it's like voter fraud in some ways. There's always this assumption that the dead person is voting, right? There's always this assumption that uh, nonprofits led by women of color, you know, are like stealing money from the top of the game. They are not. And what we found was we need, philanthropy needs to be uh, specific. They need to name what they are doing. They need to track what they are doing. And then they need to increase the amounts of money. So one of the things that's both consistent with the report and with the letter is this idea that we need to fund organizations over time, not on a year-to-year -year basis, but on a multi-year basis. Because what we see is the stress of having to do that draws the attention away from getting the outcomes on a day-to-day -day basis that we need to see in our communities. Let me ask you to just really underscore the difference between private philanthropy and public. And I care because it models a little bit the reality in public media. We raise our own money. We're accountable yes. to our audience versus somebody who has a bunch of bucks and puts on a TV show or a new shiny object in the, the media stratosphere, a new app or so forth. We are accountable to the communities that we serve. We are accountable to being explicit and about what we are trying to do and how we are trying to do it. Many public 
foundations are also accountable to deep and deep relationship. We don't just get to, on a whim, change our minds about what we want to do, how we want to do it, and the impact we want to have. And we are looking at generational change. We're not looking for day-to-day wins that we can just check off on a piece of paper. Private philanthropy on the other side of it has regulations about they have to spend 5% of whatever dollars they have, they have to give it away. 5% of a million, a billion, 16 million is a lot of money, but why should they be sitting on the other 95% that they're not spending? Where uh, many public foundations are have small, if we have endowments, we have smaller smaller endowments. We are spending above and beyond 5%. Most of us are at 7% or 10%. We are raising on an annual basis the dollars we want to move to the field. We are performing an education to those that are uh, in conversation with us. Many public foundations, including women's foundations in this country, are about building collective power, and we're having open and honest conversations about that. We know trickle down doesn't work. Trickle up works way better. Um, (laughs) Teresa, uh, we we could talk for ages. Thank you so much for your work. Uh, We end, we typically end these conversations with a question about what it is that gives you not just confidence, but a taste that these enormous changes that we're talking about are possible. We've talked for years about another world is possible. Was there ever a moment in your life or a, an interaction or a person in whose company you felt it was palpable? In this role, as well as in state government, which is where I was before I was with Ms., every day I interact and engage with folks that I believe, believe in a future that is common. And, you know, at my core, uh, Laura, I am a Girl Scout. I believe in making the world a better place. Everything I am doing is about making the world a better place, leaving this world better than I found it. And I come across people every day who believe that. And many of our grantee partners who have been doing this work year after year after year are looking at this moment in time and recognizing it is different. Seven years ago, we would not even acknowledge a conversation about race, even though we had a black president. And today we are in the midst of conversations about race, gender, class, equity in these conversations. And I have to say, that allows me to think that also the next generation of young people understand what that world could look like. And they're willing to ask the questions about it. Well, Girl Scout that you are, thank you so much. Um, That has left us on a very good positive note. And we should point out to people that the great thing about public philanthropy and public foundations is the public can actually contribute to them. Just saying Kind of like <laughs> <laughs> Teresa Younger, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that no American family can reasonably survive on $300 a month. But I'm also going to predict that the American right are going to come after the Child and Dependent Care Tax Credit Program and say it's giving too much to too many too fast. Let's just take a look. Under the White House proposal, starting this July, any family with two earners earning less than 400000 or one earning less than 200 is going to receive a tax credit or a direct payment worth about 
$250 to $300 per month per child. What's it likely to do? Reduce child poverty by half. What's the right likely to do? Attack it. What we are likely to see is progressives on the defensive. When what we really need to be doing is looking at where we stand, the U.S., in relation to just about every other Western wealthy nation. Every country you can think of. France, Germany, Denmark, Switzerland, Finland, you name it. They all have a program like this. So the real question isn't, why is this so much so quickly? But why have we waited so long? And what can we do to make this tax credit program permanent. For more information on my guests, V, founder of V-Day and One Billion Rising, and Teresa Younger, CEO of the Ms. Foundation, as well as links to V's article, Disaster Patriarchy, and the Ms. Foundation's report on holding philanthropy accountable, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. You'll also find a list of additional suggested readings and related episodes. And I invite you to watch the premiere of every week's episode on our YouTube channel, 1130 Sundays, where you can participate in a live chat with invited guests and myself. All the details are at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. While you're there, make a difference and join our team by becoming a member. Your member support is what keeps this show available for free across the country on public television and community radio and as a free podcast. Join our team today for as little as $3 a month. How about it? Collectively, it adds up and makes this programming possible. A big thanks to all of you who are already part of our Patreon partnership. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura.